0: You have to ask yourself what brought the person to this point. You have to convince yourself that this person has something hidden that you have to find. Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and you're listening to Watch This List Unplugged. This is the first episode of Amy's Progress for 2024. It is currently January 1st, 1048 p.m. And I'm doing something that I haven't done since I started the podcast in September of 2022, which is make an episode by myself without a guest. I was originally going to cover Exotica with my buddy Frank Ritz, and then tonight when I was thinking about the film and just sort of mulling it over in my mind, everything that I wanted to say, the notes I had taken, and interviews that I'd watched, essays that I'd read, I realized that I am meant to cover this alone. I hope it is some benefit to you all. And this is a movie that has been with me for longer than when I actually saw it. I had been watching movies all my life and knew about Roger Ebert forever, but it wasn't until 2013 that I started really caring about logging and writing. And I had a Tumblr that I used to keep track. I discovered my favorite critic, uh, Mike D'Angelo's blog, The Man Who Viewed Too Much. He had a 100-point grading scale that I utilized into all of my uh, rankings. So every film had a one out of 100 score. It was very particular. I even devised my own rubric and metric based on his description of zero to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, and so on, so that I knew where things fit. It's very precise and I think a good mental discipline to do. I know some of us uh, do no stars. Some people do only hearts or not. Some people do five but never give anything the full five. There's variations across the board. But if you ever want to challenge yourself, one great way to do that is to devise your own definitions for how things fit. If you're of the persuasion, that that's a little bit more type A <laughs> than the relaxed moviegoer, which let's face it, none of us are really relaxed about movies. I stumbled upon his blog and a movie that had an overlap between Ebert's great films list and one of D'Angelo's favorite films of all time, actually in his top 20, and which he has said, in his review on Letterboxd that fewer films speak to him more was Exotica. And I became aware of it in 2013. It was a film that was impossible for me to find at the time. I didn't have a lot of cinephile friends, if any friends then that were equipped to find such thing for me. So I knew of it in title. I was intrigued. I didn't know anything about the plot. And then several years later, when uh, Criterion released its Criterion channel, I was debating on whether to subscribe, and the reason I subscribed to it was because they had Exotica. And at that time, they didn't have the disc yet. So I subscribed to the channel, and I had it on a watch list that my friend Joel and I were doing. We did monthly watch lists for a couple of years together uh, where I would pick four and he would pick four. And so I waited to watch it until it had sort of been our assignment and neither of us had seen it. Prior to that also, I had only been giving movies a four and a half at most I had not given anything five star. I didn't feel like anything was worthy of that sort of idea of the perfect film, which is what I equated five with at that time was the perfect film. And everything has a flaw, right? But after I saw Exotica and the final shot sort of takes your breath away, and moves you in ways that you can't understand or put into words, but it's sort of the culmination of everything that came before, every conversation and action. Um, it's powerful, and I gave it five stars. So that was also my first log of that score. This is not a movie to read about or listen to anyone talk about without seeing it. If you haven't seen it, and this isn't a spoiler thing, this is a. I want you to experience the film in the way it was intended, which is absolutely clean slate no preconceived notions no idea of what the characters who they are how they're connected because this is an unraveling film you go in thinking certain things based on the information that you're given and then those those narrative layers are peeled back and you realize the nature of people's relationships and that is at least 50% of the joy of this experience. So I want you all to have that. Don't listen to this if you haven't seen the film. If you have, stick with me. I've got some things to say. Um, Exotica was Adam Eguin's sixth feature. He'd done five movies prior, a bunch of shorts, a Canadian filmmaker, Known for his very unusual plots. And he had frequent collaborators, not just on the actor side, but the technical side. Often used the same editor's sound, the composer, the DP. So there is a sense of ease with Exotica in particular, but with all of his films that I've seen a familiarity and uh, openness that's there, I think, because of the kindred spirit that they have. This film is centered around several characters. The main one is Francis, played by Bruce Greenwood, and then we have Christina, Eric, Thomas, Zoe, and Tracy. I'm assuming that you've seen this, so you don't need to plot some. Since this is for Amy's Progress, and I am releasing it on January 4th, which is my six-month sobriety date to the T. The last day I had a drink was July 4th. 2023, so it is literally the six-month mark, which happens to fall on a Thursday, which is the day that I always release the pod apps. Because of that, uh, which I would attribute to my clockwork providence, I'm going to talk about how this movie speaks and what I think it says. And then I'm going to read about some Eguin quotes, uh, some D'Angelo, some Ebert, and then conclude with what I take away myself. A couple of quotes stand out to me most. I've seen the movie five times now. Um, The beginning line that I said that opens the film is you have to ask yourself what brought the person to this point. At that scene, as you know, it's a uh, customs officer trying to train a new employee about watching people come in and go through their luggage, like their actual baggage, (laughs) not figurative baggage, and try to pick up on what a person could be hiding. In this case, it is... Our good friend Thomas, who is uh, smuggling in some eggs and uh, going to sell them in in his uh, (laughs) exotic uh, pet shop. But this is a theme that continues on throughout the film, which I think is why it's the first line. That we're trying to figure out what brought a person to this particular point. Another quotation I love, and I'll just say these in a row is just because the animal, this is when Francis is in the pet store with, or the, the bird shop, bird fish shop with Thomas. He says, just because the animals are exotic doesn't mean they can't endure extremes. There, I think he's talking about himself. There's a conversation between Christina and Eric where he's talking about that he doesn't think he was ever meant to be satisfied and Christina says maybe you want everything to slip away which has always stayed with me and then the final line that Tracy says to Francis towards the end When she's trying to get him to see the truth of what he's doing and the harm that it's causing, and she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore, she tells him quite bluntly, there's no baby to sit. And that's the sort of clarifying, denial-shattering moment that I feel like is pivotal and breaks the film. That everyone is doing this, playing a part in the ritualized grieving, whether it be because they think it's on for Francis's benefit or they're doing it out of their own pain. They are continuing to engage in a process that is not providing healing. It's actually harming them. I watched an interview between Adam Eguin and Sarah Pauly, who plays Tracy, on the Criterion Supplemental Materials. And uh, they were talking about that, how memory works, that that we all have different versions of the same story, that we have a fear of giving up the custodian of a memory, giving up a person who remembers the same thing as we do, even though it's time to let it go, so to speak, to move on. And then at the same time as doing that, we get stuck in the rigidity of our own stories to where we feel like our version is so accurate that there's no openness to it being influenced by someone else, even by someone who was there and even to our own detriment. So Egon is trying in this film through Tracy primarily to get Francis to the point where he can see what he's doing. Sarah Polly put it as her character saying, I'm not going to act out with you what you won't look at. And that is in essence what it is. It is that her drives with him, the car rides to him taking her to his home to play the piano and act like he's babysitting his daughter who's been murdered. Driving her back reminds him of when he used to do that with Christina, when he would drive her back home. And it's in those moments that it is a actual positive therapeutic process, even though they're young, um, too young, and he really needs to see someone that's that can help him constructively. But for him, the car rides both in the past and the present represent a, a positive therapy. And, uh, what Egoin calls the club is a soul destroying, soul destroying process. Uh, Christina wears a school goal, school girl uniform, that mirrors what Francis's daughter was wearing when she was murdered. It's the same outfit that she saw in the field when she and Eric discovered the dead body. Egoin was describing his process for writing Exotica, and he said that in his first draft, there wasn't a club at all. It was a movie about different men who were going through grief or suffering in some way who would drive Tracy around. And there was something special about her that enabled them to be vulnerable and talk about their pain. And then he got this idea of that someone who is Christina would be like a dual she would serve a dual purpose. So when Francis first comes to the club, which is something that we don't see. So I only know this because Ego and talked about it, when he first comes in and sees Christina there, he didn't know that she was going to be there. And then she's wearing the the same sort of outfit that his daughter was found in. And so Christina had her own reasons, which Adam didn't get into of why she wanted to wear that, which is a bit, well, it's very dark. And then Francis for being drawn to that in, in some sort of backwards, deep way. Um, but this is a film about faulty coping strategies rooted in impulse. These people feel compelled to act in certain ways because they are experiencing a vacuum or hopelessness that these rituals fill. And D'Angelo refers to Francis' behavior as denial codified by demented ritual, I think that gets at the point more succinctly than perhaps I could, which is this repetition. And in that way, though the film is not about addiction, addiction, addictions are repetitive behaviors. They are rituals, habits. We return to them the people who have this, who are addicts, return to them in a way that deepens denial and furthers reality from being confronted. But the thing that every addiction has in common, whether it's eating disorders, or shopping, or gambling, or alcoholism, or drugs. It is the mental obsession. It's the returning back. And one thing I thought about when I was watching this was in the big book, which is the basically the AA Bible, they talk about how Eventually people are unable to imagine their life either with alcohol or without it. And this is direct quote from the book. Then that person will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. So these people are nearing the end. I think once this film sort of starts and we get into that journey, there are, they are near the jumping off point where they can't imagine their lives with with the pain, but they also can't imagine their lives without it because experiencing the pain has become so central to their identity. Being lost or depressed or grieving has actually become so kindred to the person that it's almost become this strange warm blanket or this strange presence in the house, like a ghost. And it's kind of like that Pascal quote where he's like, if I lose the demons, then the angels go too. And who am I? Um, if you let them go, you have to redefine yourself to a certain extent, and maybe it's not necessarily redefining because it's it's not really that you're seeking unfamiliar territory. It's more like excavation like unbearing a fossil. It's the way that Stephen King talks about stories. Uh, I read in on writing that he had an interview with Matt Singer years ago, and Matt Singer was asking him how he came up with his narratives about his plots specifically, and King said stories are found things. And what he went on to describe brilliantly is that he thinks of an idea, but it's as though they are fossils in the ground. His stories aren't birthed from pure creation. And when he stumbles upon the fossils, he takes the tools in his toolbox. And some of them are dramatic tools like sledgehammers. And some of them are like a toothbrush that's Scraping off the, the top layer of dust, and he's very careful with it. But it is, it is this idea of finding something that already exists and then getting to the point where it is unburied and you can see it very clearly. In Exotica, these things are buried. And the characters, by their compulsion and desire not to feel pain, have coped with the problem in the only way they felt they could. And it is a sort of mutually... Fragile way, but it isn't enhancing, it's diminishing. So, the way that the journey goes in this is that Francis eventually arrives at the point where he's kicked out of the club. So he can no longer see Christina. And then we learn the relationship between he and Eric, which he wasn't even aware of. And we certainly weren't that Eric found his daughter's body with Christina and he embraces him in the parking lot. And that's sort of the end as far as the present tense is concerned. And then we get a flashback and have that ending. But, Another thought that struck me in this rewatch that resonates deeply is that when you're experiencing a great loss, whatever way that you are dealing with that and trying to manage it or failing to manage it. Your pain is seeking healing and resolution. And until you find that relief, if you ever do, it won't stop. It will never be quiet. And in this film, what eases the pain at last. Is that embrace that sort of ushering in an ability to confront the situation head on, and the truth comes out, and then there's there's room for actual resurrection, if you want to use that term. It's as though it reminds me sort of of ghost, ghost stories um, where the ghost is trying to say something and that's why it's haunting the house like the changeling with George C. Scott. It's trying to communicate this story of this horrendous thing that happened because the child was killed and no one knew why. And until the truth is out the ghost is going to continue and it's not it's not because it's evil. It's because it's unresolved. And as soon as it's, as soon as the truth is out, it goes. And I think that a lot of people take the tactic of venting and Especially when the pain is at the surface, it's almost as though there's nothing else that you can talk about when something's gone wrong, or very wrong. And it just comes out in every conversation, no matter what the conversation's about, to whomever you're speaking to, depending on the level of pain, how acute it is, how close to the surface it is. And it doesn't seem to alleviate So one of the benefits that I found for myself in my own process, progress, is what really soothes, and this is what Eric tells Christina, that it used to soothe him, like, you soothed me. Like, do you understand? You soothed me. When he would watch her with Francis and see how it soothed him, it would soothe Eric is not just venting or talking about problems. It's listening to people who have the same ones as you do. Hearing how other people handle it. Not because you want a solution necessarily. Maybe you don't. And maybe you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And that's okay. But There is healing in the power of stories from people who know, who can articulate how you feel, even if you don't have the words yourself. And sometimes there's just one thing that stands out that a person could say that will click with you that you'd never heard before. Or maybe you had heard it before, but you'd never heard it put exactly that way before. And all of a sudden, there's this shift in consciousness. And you think, okay, I can suddenly go in this direction that I couldn't before. And I think that's what happens with Francis and Eric that when they are able to come together and it's outside of the club, it's in the parking lot. The healing is not in the club. And the healing is not in the car. It's outside of both of those spaces, which are the central spaces of exotica. They're, they become real. And they can talk about what's actually happened. One thing that I was told, just as an example of such a statement, is I have a friend who was telling me about his early days in sobriety, and he told me that he was very intelligent, which I know this person to be. He had a master's degree. He was very high up in the corporation he worked for. He felt that he was smarter than anybody in the rooms, anybody that he talked to, he felt he had superior intelligence. And one day his he was talking to his sponsor, and his sponsor said, You know, you think you think really high of yourself, don't you? And my friend said, Yes, I do. I I pride myself on um my intelligence. And I've always been praised for it. And his sponsor said, Well, actually, you know, you have very low self-esteem. And My friend said normally he would have reacted with, screw you, and not listened to anything that that anybody had to say if somebody said something like that to him, but instead he held his tongue and paused and said, okay, let's say that I do. How do I get self-esteem? And his sponsor said, you get self esteem by doing esteemable acts. Now, this is a fairly straightforward, simple statement. It's not very elevated word wise, vocabulary wise. It's straightforward. But when I heard that, it clicked that part of the struggle of pain is that you aren't able th- there's a blockage there of being able to act for others because you're so you're so buried and covered by what's going on in your life and your own thoughts and you feel so alone. But if, if we can put ourselves in situations where people can speak and we can hear them, even if we still feel lousy afterwards and even if it doesn't actually change anything, there is a magical healing power of stories. And I think that is the message of exotica for me now. It's that line of move your feet and your mind will follow. Putting yourself in different situations than you normally are in, because the situations that we're in every single day are the ones that are helping keep us stuck. So much of what we experience, if not all of it, is our interpretations and our psychology and our memory, which is another big theme that Ego and Tops talks about and talked about with Polly, who did Stories We Tell, which is also all about memory. Polly also wrote a book called Run Towards the Danger, where she explores that as well, how much the past influences the present and how we think about it matters and how we're not open often to people speaking in. And in addition to that, actively engaging in toxic relationships that take us even further from the truth. So I love this film. It speaks to me In ways that I don't know how to describe. The experience of it is special. It's singular. The people who write about this film. Who loved it. I know instantly that we're on the exact same wavelength. And there is something there. But if I take that base. And come out of it what I really want to communicate. And this is just beyond my show and letterboxed and my writing, everything. It would be to encourage you as you're listening to the sound of my voice to get very quiet and think about the people that you know in your life who care about your well-being. Who bring out a version of yourself that helps you like yourself. And try to seek that actively. In whatever way you can, no matter how great or small. If that just means a phone call or that just means a text message to someone from your past who fits that description Part of the passion that I have now is sharing honesty in a way that is useful to others. And that's what anybody wants to do. Anybody with a story about how they got out of pain, how they themselves were brought out by others, they're powerful, powerful. And I will leave you with this line. Um, Another powerful statement that was given to me by my friend, same friend, was that in the early days of sobriety, which I'm still in, the first 180 days, especially in the first 30 and the 90, there are these points where you feel like the idea of giving something up That was so integral to yourself as a person and how you function and how you deal with life is impossible to imagine being without. But further than that, what you're really longing for is practical advice. You want people to tell you the how. You know what the problem is if you want to stop. If you're desperate enough, you'll do anything. You'll try anything, but you have to know what to try to do. And so, one statement that has always stayed with me, and this is very simple as well, is the way to sobriety for an alcoholic is to never take the first drink. And that's it. That's the whole thing. You don't take the first drink. They describe it as the phenomena of craving. That happens after the first, and then you're gone. And this can be so many things that it could apply to, you know, that first text, right? Of the person in your life that you shouldn't be talking to, that you know will hurt you, who has hurt you. How do you avoid it? You don't take, you don't take the first text. You don't, Use, And that kind of clarity, although doesn't actually solve the problem of indulgence, I think everything first begins with a consciousness understanding. If you know, if you have a vision for what you want to be like, it's easier to change. But if you can't imagine your life as being anything but miserable, then it will be that too. Then you've already made a choice. Whether it's you think it's passive or not, if you're not moving towards something, you're moving away. There's never anything static. You're not just sort of in the middle. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. I want to encourage you to move forward. And this film helps me do that. I hope it will for you too. I'll see you at the movies.